Hey, what's up, guys? Lucas Burnley here, along with my co-host, TJ Schwartz. You are listening to the Edge and Flow podcast. Um, what are we going over today, TJ? Yeah, well, we're getting to get together today to talk a little bit about kind of a state of the union in each of our shops, what we're up to, where we're going, what's our vision, you know, just a snapshot of where we're at. Nice. So I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. We have we have brief talks about this, but I, I'm excited to get into your mind and what you have planned. So yeah, what, what's on the forefront for you right now? Man, um, I'm kind of all over the place right now. Um, it <laughs> My shop is still getting set up, um, which is crazy. We've lived in Bend for two years. Um, I'd say the shop's been kind of functioning for about 18 months. And it's just not home yet. Like the shop is not, it does not feel like home yet. So interesting. Yeah. Um, I balance that with the fact that I just need to work. Um, so basically kind of what I've got going on right now is working in kind of little bursts and then I'll rearrange the shop, um, or like move a few things around. Um, almost all my equipment is, is running. Um, I've still got a surface grinder down and I'm down maybe one grinder and a good compressor. So, um, I've got a, so I've got I, a Kaser coming. Ooh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I hear amazing things about those. And with a dryer, air dryer yeah, with the dryer. Yeah. I that's had awesome. one, I had one when we were on Cape and like kind of once you have one and you see what it's like to have like perfect, clean, dry air. And quiet. And quiet. It's really hard yep. to go back. Yeah. One so, of those puppies is in my future. I yeah. don't know if it'll be a Kaser, but yeah. some kind of screw compressor with a dryer. Yeah. It's, they're worth it. Um, so yeah, man, that's kind of like, it feels, it feels like it's just ongoing right now. Um, still like I've been running parts on the CNC, been making a few fixed blades here and there. Um, our mm -hmm. business is weird right now and we've got the little kids at home and, you know, so it's, yeah. Yeah. So the, the one, the one shop of yours that I've actually visited is in Albuquerque. Yep. Got to stay with you for a couple of nights and saw that you, you talked recently when I, when you and I were having a conversation about how you kind of romanticize that shop and how yeah. it was kind of like when you found the best groove of your life. Is that, is that right? I think, yeah, I think it's a function of the type of work that I was doing 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, ultimately I was in that shop for a full decade. So at the point that I left, I think it was as efficient as I could make it. And I was also doing a lot more volume in terms of just like what I was physically producing on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis. Um, so as I've been setting up this shop, I keep like having these weird little moments where I'm like, I was like, this feels like Albuquerque. It's about the same footprint. It's a the new shop's 1500 square feet. I think Albuquerque was right at a thousand, but we're split into two floors. So the first floor is pretty close to my shop layout that I had in Albuquerque. Um, it was tight space, but everything had its place. Everything had a function. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've just kind of, I've given up on trying to like overthink it and I've just slowly been yeah. putting it back together that way. Yeah. On that thread, on the conversation of square footage, I do think it's kind of interesting how, how much can fit in a confined space. Yep. You know, it's, I think 
sometimes too big of a shop can be a curse. I mean, I don't have that experience personally, but just it seems like when you have a small shop, you're you're forced to make harder decisions, which end up serving you well in the long run as far as like acquiring new equipment or holding on to stuff you don't really need and stuff like that. Yeah. And just general, general workflow and layout. Um, so I got to experience the other side of that, which was going from a thousand square feet to when we moved to the Cape, I had 2,400 mm-hmm. and yeah, you basically just go out to the walls and then mm-hmm. everything is far away from everything else. And I started to work back into like these little pods because it just felt yeah. like I was working in a football field. Right. You know? Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I tend to think for, for soul craftsmen, like even up to like two people on a shop floor, I tend to really like small, efficiently designed workshops. Yeah. Oh, it's I at a good agree. human scale. I tend to agree. Yeah. And for me, like in my future, what I kind of, what I want to head towards is like the 800 to 1200 square foot range. Yep is what I'd like to have. And I, th- I think if I had my office as part of the shop, but yep. also separate, that would be like an, a, a crucial thing. Yep. Cause I like having the office like in close proximity for obvious reasons, but it's, it, it's, I don't like having my office anywhere that there's going to be like dust. Even if I have good dust collection and whatnot, like you're always going to get some. Um, and it, if I'm doing real clean work, you know, office paperwork and stuff, it'd be nice to, to have it totally walled off. And so right now in my current shop, I don't have the space to do that. So that's one frustration I have. I'd like to get rectified in our next place. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Um, I'm getting, I'm like building a little computer station downstairs back to Albuquerque shop. Like I had my main computer on the shop floor and Mm -hmm. when you're doing CNC and doing design work, it's a really organic workflow to be able to like, fire up the CNC, have some thought and go like edit the cam or like edit another drawing. And for Mm -hmm. me, it's like just walking up the stairs and going to my office. But even that separation, I think there's value to having something just present, whether that's your laptop when you're working or having like a computer that just lives down there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a nice it's a nice addition, but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't trade it for having dedicated shop space. Right. You know? Yeah. I've bounced between those two philosophies a little bit of having, cause my main computer in my office is like a full, I guess, two doorways that I'd have to go through between my CNC right. and my main computer. And the, the biggest thing I've found is like, if I want to change like feeds and speeds, like the RPM or something, and you know, you're, you're adjusting it, tweaking it little by little and you test something. I found that if, if the computer is far away, I settle a lot sooner Yeah. on like a feeds and speeds. Yeah. Cause if it's right there and you're like, Oh, I think it was a little too, a little too much adjustment, a little too slow or whatever. I need to bump it back up. Yeah. It's like, if it's working okay and you don't want to, you know, tromp through the house to go to your computer, it's kind of not, you kind of settle. And so well, I think the more accessible it is, the yeah, better. Yeah, you're do. you're opening yourself up to distraction too, which is that's the thing. It's not the it's not the 15 feet between or the two doors. It's the mm-hmm. fact that a lot can happen crossing two thresholds right. and like you get distracted yeah. and then you like we work for ourselves like you like walk in and oh there's the fridge I want to have a snack and then like yeah it, it can it can really yeah. snowball. 
Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I talked to, or I didn't talk to him, but I listened to some John Grimsmo stuff where he talked about that exact thing. Uh-huh. Where especially having kids at home and stuff, it's like yep. the more times you walk through your household, the more you're flipping switches in and out of like the work mindset. Yeah. And the, you know, the more it hurts your efficiency, which that's one benefit of being self-employed I've found and being on site with my family is the ability, you know, at lunchtime to hang out with the kids. I really enjoy that. But if it's every 10 minutes you're adjusting cam and it's like yeah. every time your kid's kind of begging you to pick them up or something, it's like it it gets tedious or it gets difficult, I guess, to prioritize. Yeah, you kind of want to be able to turn it off. And on. that's why like it was a hard decision in a way for me to bring a shop back onto our property. But with the kids, the ages that they are, um, right now two and five, it just made so much sense. Cause it gives you this flexibility of like time. Like I can, I can put, we can put the kids to bed and I can go work for an hour. Um, or I can come out and work in the morning and then come in and have breakfast with them. Um, mm-hmm. so I think, yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a lot of, there's more pros than cons, but it definitely, yeah. it definitely requires, um, practice and just, just some planning. I think probably right now as a, as a society, a lot of people are figuring that out just because of how much homework is happening and like remote work. Um, mm-hmm. it takes a while to I, get used to. I always thought it was funny. So, you know, I've been doing this for a good number of years and it used to be people would ask me what I do. I say, you know, I design knives, I make knives and stuff. And they'd be say, Oh, where do you work? And I say, right. I just, I work from home. And they'd say, well, that's crazy. Like, I can't believe you're working from home. That seems like a dream or seems so weird or so rare. And then it was like, after the whole pandemic thing, it was like, now when I say I work from home, there's no reaction. Right. No one thinks it's weird. No one thinks it's fresh or new or odd or special. It's like, I I got to see the transition of like the general public's mindset on like what self-employment at home is. Yeah. And so now it's just, you almost assume like, oh yeah, you work from home. Right. (laughs) So yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure that the data on this has expanded greatly. So oh, yeah. be books written on it and all kinds of, I'm sure know, it's content. interesting. What, uh, what do you got going on in the shop? Your, your shop is in a different stage than mine. And you're like, you're in like a pretty heavy growth phase right now. So, yeah. Yeah. So I've made knives over the years dating back to pretty early when I started designing knives. I always thought it was important to get my hands dirty and make knives because if if you didn't know and you're listening to this, I started out designing. So I started out like in the 3D CAD and CAM world. And I I wanted to gravitate towards making because I grew up, my dad having his shop and, uh, you know, he's a craftsman. And that's what I grew up doing was working with my hands. And so in those early years, I had like a TW90 belt grinder, which is awesome. And I had a sandblasting cabinet. And that was really about it. I think I had like a drill press, some basic stuff, and I built some fixed blades. This is like six or seven years ago. And it didn't really fit what I wanted to be doing in that my designs in the CAD cam scene, like when I was designing production knives and stuff, I felt like I was doing things that were not replicatable with just like the tools that I had, like with a grinder. And it was like, I, I felt like if I had to design it, and simmer it all the way down to what I could just grind. It like, it bothered me in a weird way because it was like, I, I really liked things like chamfers. I really liked, you know, you know, intricate detail. Yeah. They were and very, that, yeah, very geometric. You had yeah. a lot of, you had a lot of detail work that would lend itself towards CNC. 
Exactly. And yeah. so because my design language was hard to translate, it just felt like this really rigid thing that wasn't very organic. And like me making knives, I was doing it and enjoying it, but it felt like it was kind of detached. Right. And so I kind of resolved to get a CNC, but at the time I was pretty young and didn't own a house or anything like that. So I went on the endeavor to buy a house. My wife and I bought a house and then finally got the CNC recently. And well, recently is in like 18 months ago. And then at that point, it's been just like a, a vertical curve of like filling out the shop, getting all the equipment I need, designing fixtures, uh, just ramping up across the board. So it's kind of like this dream that I've had in the back of my mind of like taking that leap to the CNC has finally culminated. And so really in the last six months has been kind of like the biggest transition probably in the, of my entire career, which is to move like a big part of, you know, my income and my like stability over to just actual products that I'm making myself. And so it's, it's been a, a blast and I really enjoy it and it's going well. And yeah, I've got, I'm hungry, you know, I've got a lot of things <laughs> I'd like to keep, keep pushing on. You've got, you've got two models right now, right? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've got the Overland mm-hmm. and then you have a small, like skeletonized, like utility, right? What scalpel is that called? Plus is what scalpel I call it. Plus, yeah, yeah. And both of them yeah. are doing pretty well. So, the, and you're alternating between making batches of those two. Yeah, essentially, and sometimes there's overlap. You know, nice. with like the machine running on one thing, and I'm you know hand finishing or sharpening the other thing. And that's one of the things that I've had to to learn about is like because I'm running my shop in like a small scale sort of manufacturing kind of way almost scheduling is actually like one of the biggest things I have to focus on. Mm-hmm. And it, it has to do with, I can't work on like one knife start to finish and then start the next knife or the next small batch. Right. Because their numbers are big enough now that like when it goes to heat treat and when it comes back, I have to focus on, you know, when do, am I going to have the handle scales ready by the time they get back from heat treat or I'm going to use that time to work on scalpels, you know, like the actual timeline of events is probably my biggest struggle right now. And what I'm like trying to nail down. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. That is that numbers teach you efficiency in a way that just building cannot on its own. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like as soon as you're working with numbers, like, you know, if you're working on 20, 30, 40, a hundred pieces, every efficient, it's like efficiency just becomes glaringly obvious. Yeah, and like any sure. inefficiency is glaringly obvious. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you see it in a different way. Cause I mean, if you're making something completely by hand or like working, like I'll do stuff on the CNC where I'm ba- I'll, I'll make five knives and like, basically I'm working on one knife almost all the way through. Like I'll cut all the parts, but you mm-hmm. just in those numbers, like you, the, the efficiencies don't, or like the inefficiencies don't stack rather. Right. You right. just don't see it when you're doing a hundred. Mm-hmm man. Yeah. And I found that really, really significantly when I was, I was doing all my Kydex, you know, in-house or Mm -hmm. I still am doing all my Kydex sheaths in-house. And it occurred to me when I started to scale the volume up that I was like the, the labor of doing Kydex sheaths just completely manually was like a huge percentage of the labor in the knives I was building. Like, and it doesn't feel that way when you build three of them. Yep. But once I was doing a, you know, a hundred, I'd build the hundred knives and then have to build a hundred sheaths. And I was like kind of taken back at like how long it took to build that many sheaths. 
in relation to the knives. And it seemed weird. It seemed like a misallocation of energy considering all the perceived values in the knife, not in the sheath, you know? And so that was where I was like, I had to figure out a strategy. So I, I thought about outsourcing as far as having a local guy do the Kydex for me. I kind of ran that up and down the tree to see just what they would charge and timeline and kind of ran into some issues there because I offer all different colors and on my sheaths and there's a left hand and a right hand variation. And then there's also black eyelets or brass eyelets, which would basically all that would have to go away if I was outsourcing. It'd have to be like maybe two options. Right. And so I was like, well, I got to figure out how to do it myself or kill those options. And so I turned it, you know, turned out the solution was to have the CNC machine the Kydex and have it, you know, thermoformed like normal. But instead of grinding it and bandsawing it, the CNC puts the holes in it and does the perimeter, which has been excellent. But it ties up the CNC machine because if I thermoform stuff and then it goes on the CNC, if I'm going to finish each sheath one at a time, then it's basically like two minutes of machining and then like 10 minutes of finishing the sheath. And so that the machine's tied up, even though it's not really doing a whole lot, which stops everything else. And so you, so it's like that kind of stuff really all pivoting around the CNC. That's for me because so much of what I'm doing is on the mill, how to get things through the mill in an efficient way. Right. That makes sense. That's really the the name of the game. And so that's why I had to go ahead and order another mill is partly because like with the Kydex being a major portion of the time on the mill, like it freed me up, but then it created a log jam on the machine timeline. Right. So that's so just kind of tell us, tell us about the mill you got. You got kind of a, log yeah. Card. So, so I went out on a limb a little bit, um, and got a machine called a Sile X7. That's S Y I L X7 is the model. And it is a beefy little unit. So it's not a very big mill. Uh, the m- mill I have in my shop currently is a Tormach 1100 MX, which is a really lightweight machine. It has all the features you would want, but it's really lightweight. And the new machine has pretty much all the same features, like on paper, but it's a lot heavier and has a lot more just general mass. It actually is like three and a half, four times heavier and like four times more power. Specs are super impressive on paper. Like you and I have been going back and forth in this conversation of like looking at Sile and Haas. You found Sile and you found that they presented a really unique opportunity kind of value for features. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My primary concern was like, you know, aftermarket support yeah, um, serviceability. and serviceability, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm still kind of like leaning towards Haas and you've actually ordered a Sile. So now mm-hmm. I get to use you as a tester and see how it goes yeah. with Sile. But on paper, like the features, what they're offering is insane. Oh, it is. Yeah, it. It. I'd heard of them before. Like they exi- Like five years ago when I was kind of looking around at CNCs and stuff, not very seriously, that name came up and I looked at them. I glanced past them. And at the time I could read a list of stats or specifics on a machine and I didn't even know what I was looking at. Sure. Right. And so Tormach was like the biggest name brand that was in my budget. Right. And so that was like single phase power and other things that I needed. And so I went with that. But now that I have machining experience and I understand specs, then I looked at the style and was like, wait a minute, this is kind of like a sleeping giant like kind of like a an affordable opportunity that i feel like is being underutilized in the industry and so i decided to to just give it a shot and see what happens do we do we know any knife makers who are running a sile at this point 
So I'm in a Facebook group that's style operators or style owners or something mm-hmm. like that. There's a few knife makers in there, but they're not, they're like hobbyists as far as I can tell. And they're not people that I know okay. outside of, sure. they're not knife industry people that I know. Outside of that group. Yeah. Yeah. No like yeah. household names. Interesting, yeah. man. When's that mill hit? So about a month, I believe it might be five weeks, something like that. Nice. So it's coming quick. Five weeks. What other what other automated equipment do you have? You have a laser, right? You have a uh, a fiber laser. Uh, fiber laser. Yep. Yeah, fifty watt fiber laser, Galvo. Okay, nice. Mm-hmm. And then three D printers. Yeah, a couple of just a like a standard FDM three D printer, mm-hmm. glorified hot glue gun yep. with X Y axis, and a SLA printer, which is like the resin type. High resolution. Right. Are you finding at this point, are you using one more than the other? Uh, I rely on the FDM. It's a Prusa yeah, 3D printer. That's what I have to. And I rely on that thing nine times out of 10 uh-huh. um, because it's, it's, there's no cleaning. There's no mess. There's no smell. It's just the fastest, easiest, simplest, most bulletproof. But the biggest thing I've discovered actually is the uh, material on the, on the FDM printer is heat. Uh, sensitive. So it's actually like a, a material that's melted and thus deposited. So it's like a hot glue stick. Right. Where if I'm trying to, like, I make my own sheaths, you know, and I have different like interfaces on the sheath. And so I have to 3D print generally the scales of the knife to simulate like these different pedestals for mounting like clips and things. And if I 3D print it in the SLA, which is like an epoxy resin type material, that's UV it's cure. not very heat sensitive and it heats, it cures via UV. And it'll handle the heat of Kydex. So, Super interesting. So I rely on it extensively for my sheath making. So I couldn't really do without it. But that's so far really the only thing I've used it for. Man, once again, like talking about different workflows, when you're designing in with solid models, those are the like additional benefits that you get that are insane. Like you're able to, you have a solid model of your knife. You're able to take a, you know, a section of that and use it as a sheath boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I've, I've tried to maintain that, that like the precision upstream precipitates efficiency downstream, if that makes sense. So for example, my bevels may, I may not be doing it the most efficient way. So I, I mill the bevels and then I stone them right. to remove the milling lines. And you could say that I'm, I'm not a great grinder, like on a two by 72, but sure. I, I'm probably within reach of getting good enough to do all these that way. And it may not even be slower. Like it may actually be faster, but the reason that I like doing it, the machining and then stoning way is I preserve the geometry so perfectly that the sheaths are always the same. Right. And so the time savings bears out in the sheath making in a lot of ways. Well, and And passive time is different than active time. Um, I made, I made that argument like pretty early on with CNC where I was like, look, I can make a knife faster than I can make it with the CNC. Um, and my friend Pat Pruitt was the one who had like given me the nudge to get into CNC. And like, he helped me with my initial drawings and would like help me run parts on his machine. And he was like, yeah, you can, you can build one knife faster. You can't build 10 knives faster. Right. Exactly. For us, I don't even know that like for me, speed was never the goal, Mm -hmm. but efficiency of labor absolutely is like, there's just tasks where 
it makes sense to be able to automate a process that you're going to do over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was your saying again? Efficiency upstream. Create uh, precision upstream creates efficiency, efficiency downstream. Okay. I like that. That makes sense. Yeah. I think, it, I think it bears out in a few cases, but like you said, with the, with the, another thing with the sheets is like precision machining the handles right. means I can 3d print fake handles that are left right hand or whatever that have various features on them that would be hard to machine. And it's like, like you said, you couldn't do that without the handles being machined to high precision. Right. You know what I mean? So it just, and the sheaths is where it really bears out in a fixed blade, but in, in a lot of different situations, especially folders, like there's other situations where that pops up, I think. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited for you to tackle a folder. I want to get there. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I have a few kind of missing pieces in my picture that I'd like to have before I tackle it. Equipment know, wise? Strongly. Or? I'd like to have a surface grinder. Yeah. So I don't have a surface grinder. I could have it surface grind it, ground out of house and do it, but I don't want to do it just to do it. If I'm going to do it, it's because I want to do it well and right. And in a way that I think is, you know, functional from a business standpoint. And if I'm, if I'm trying to prototype knives and I'm waiting a week or two for someone else to surface grind it just to test it out and figure out, I need to make a revision. It's like the whole model of failing early, failing, failing fast. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Absolutely. But like, quickly reiterating it's like without a surface grinder i really can't quickly reiterate anything (laughs) from a folder standpoint i think being Um, small shop i think the ability to iterate quickly and make adjustments is i don't know that it's undervalued but i think that i think it for me it's one of the most critical elements of a small shop like even if you're not mm going to do all of your own heat treating the ability to heat treat is so valuable. Like absolutely. You might lose a box of blades in the mail. You might have a show that's coming up and the knives don't show up. Like there's so many things that can go wrong that if you're able to just do it at a small scale, creates Mm -hmm. so much value. Um, we had, I go to these like small business meetings. Um, they're like blue collar executive level. Mm -hmm. Last night it was at this company, Thorin, um, which does like suspension, crazy long travel suspensions and stuff for Rams. Nice. They have like, so we went and we like got to hang out. They just bought like a crazy nine axis deuce on. Oh man. Like machine, you can like get inside of it. Just crazy. Nine axis. Is that, so is it like a lathe spindle in it? Yeah. It's like a lathe yeah. spindle mill. Like it's uh, yeah. crazy, but they've got, they have a little laser cutter on the floor and they're like the majority of our production we send out for laser work. They're like, but the ability for us to design and test a product real time, they're like, it's, it's invaluable. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. you can over it, efficiency, you can get to the point of efficiency where like you don't make anything. That's not yeah. fun. I mean, yeah. it, obviously it works for some people and what they want to do for their business, but like, I like making things. Yeah. Same so, here. You know? Yeah. No, it's. It's reiteration is obviously imperative. I mean, any, any design manual or class will tell you that like reiteration is just, that's where all the cream rises to the top. You know what I mean? And so if, if you can't reiterate in any reasonable way in your shop, like if something's missing, that's bottlenecking your reiterations, that's an issue for innovation and for perfecting, not just the product, but the processes in general. Right. 
you know? And so, yeah, that's the folder thing. Again, I I don't want to sink a bunch of time into it and get sideways and backwards trying to do it just to say I did it. Right. I'd like to amass the correct ways to do it. Right. The right, you know, do it in a strong way. That fits your process in general too. Like, right. You're not really going to half-ass it. I feel like, have you looked at the, have you looked at the Tormach surface grinder? Uh, they, they discontinued it. Oh, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So just recently, the big thing that I'm, where I'm at is I don't actually know if I could fit one in my shop, which really? sounds crazy, no matter how small. You uh, could fit a small one. You could have fit the Tormach, I think. I don't know, man. Really? Not with the two. I don't know about with the two oh, mills. Oh yeah. Cause you're going to be running two mills. Yeah. So yeah, for, <laughs> for those listening, I, my shop is. 280 square feet or something like that and i'm gonna have two cncs a grinding area sandblaster air compressor drill press workbenches, uh tumbler <laughs> in a very like a small 1970s one car garage like a small like you couldn't fit like a full-size truck in the garage <laughs> and and that's like my whole shop with two cncs in it You're- which i i'm happy with it Right. It's but doing everything. The you folder thing, the folder thing is maybe a bridge too far in this size shop. That's what I'm starting to think. Something fun to dig into a little bit. Like I'm a huge fan like of, of what I think of as like the modular shop. Like mm-hmm. I jump around on the type of work that I do. And like, sometimes I wish I could be more, I don't know, like linear. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a product I'm going to make. Here's the process that I use to build it. I've never had that. So it's like, I'm setting up a forging area in my shop. So I've got like a CNC machine and then I've got like, you know, 1800s yeah. industrial revolution tech. That's awesome. 10 feet away from it. I and love it, it. Yeah, but it, it, it has made me design my shop in a way that workstations can be like moved and reconfigured depending on what that work looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty fun actually. Like lately I I've almost taken it on as like its own project, which is this idea of like the modular workshop. Yeah. Um, if it can Un- use casters for a lot yeah, of things. If, like, so the yeah. basic rule is like if, a, if something can be on wheels and function, it should be on wheels. Right. Yeah, and awesome. I use like high end casters that have like, like I've got my like a little milling machine on casters and basically like it's got auto levelers. So like once it's in position, I can crank the levelers down and it's back to being a rigid tool. But being a one man shop, like the ability to move even like a 500 pound machine is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like from there, like workbench heights, like I have like different benches that can be reconfigured. Even like I set up like in this hot work area, I set up like a, like a, a weld fixturing table and it's on wheels, but it can like roll up to other tables. I can get extended work surfaces. Mm -hmm. Um, so your shop, because you're space limited, I think is prime for that thought process because you have tools that you, you need, but you don't need every day. Yeah. Permanent access is not necessary. Permanent access is not necessary, but like the ability to, you know, so maybe that's like a small surface grinder that is on, you know, maybe you're doing like a six by 18 or something 
Yeah. And you're able to like push it out of the way or. Yeah, no, that's true. That, that could be something. And the other thing is I do have a carport on the front that's, you know, weather protected. And then also we're building like a, an awning on the back that's steel roof that's nice. weather protected. So there might be some items like I have a, I have a table saw stored in there. Right. Um, that is probably going to get displaced when the new CNC shows up under a carport and so, or under the protected area. And so there's some of that going on of like things that can be in like low temperatures, right. not getting wet, but like right. can survive outside. Man, it I've got a hydraulic press like that's the, already outside. The thought of the thought of keeping tools outside. I know a lot I know. of people do it, but it's always like, I, I've never been able to bring, like I have a hard time keeping like mild steel bar stock outside. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Are it, you it familiar is, with Festool? Ooh, that rings a bell. So but I can't remember. Just for fun, do a little bit of research on like Festool wood shops. Um, it's basically a system of woodworking tools that all fit into like these little like transportainers. So it's all cubically mm. stacked, and then they all plug into a dust collection system. Mm. It is it is the most delightful like woodworking nice. setup you can imagine. Wow. Yeah, like clean, that, that efficient, really cool. like they, they all just stack. have a knife maker set up. Yeah, no knife maker set up. And, and honestly, like no knives or no, uh, no tools that are even like really applicable to things that we're doing. Right. But just a really intelligent way of working as like, as a format, I think we can use some of what they're doing in our, yeah in our knife shops. Yeah. I think my, my outright out, uh, like what was the word I was looking for? My out route right now is to look into the next bigger shop. So like I'm kind of putting the the folder on a pedestal that will be like project number one in my next shop. Interesting. And so and so I'm I'm kind of looking at it as like squeeze this shop for everything it's worth on a fixed blade front because I know it's well equipped for that. And then the leap to the next shop will basically be preparing me for the folder scene. So that's kind of kind of my strategy for now. That we'll you know, it's funny. It kind of ties into a like a thought process that I've had over the last few years, which is that you should let efficiency exist where it is efficient. Like mm-hmm. so, a lot of times, like the way that I like to work is inefficient, right? Like I'm that efficiency is not my primary drive, but helping to build the systems that can run efficiently in that is super, Mm -hmm. super valuable. So like you have a system that's working, a product that you're producing that is efficient and it will help Mm -hmm. you get to like the next stage. But yeah, taking a step back and like messing that up just slows everything down. Right. Well, and that, that kind of circles back to like one of the driving philosophies that I've found success with is like, I think I might've mentioned it in previous recordings is uh, process oriented design. Yep which is essentially, I kind of coined the phrase, it's probably been used before. But what I mean by that is like looking at the processes you have access to around you and not just access to, but that are that are readily available and efficient and that don't have bottlenecks attributed to them. And then combine those on a piece of paper, like just look at like, okay, I know someone who has a water jet that will help me out. I know someone that has a laser or I have a 2W90 grinder. And then you look at it on a piece of paper. These are the these are the processes and assets in my inner circle. What is that product? When you look at that, 
And so one of the things that I've done in the past is like when I was still living in an apartment, like I said, I, I didn't have a CNC. It was before I owned a house. I really wanted to make stuff with my hands. The knife thing wasn't really panning out, making it myself. And so I thought, what do I have access to? I knew a guy in Boise that had a laser cutting, like a full, like a, we're talking like half a million dollar laser system. And I was like, I can get anything cut that I want. And my dad has a leather shop. And so I, that was when I came up with that folding comb. So if anyone's followed my work, they've seen probably my folding combs. And so I was like, my mind was still in the mindset of like a folding knife. But I was like, I, can't, I don't have the ability to grind and machine a knife, but I could laser engrave or laser cut combs. And so it was, it was a product of like process oriented design. So I didn't go into it thinking like, I want to make a comb. How do I do it? And then seek out the channels to do right. it. It was like the channels that I had, I put down on paper, looked at and said, what is that product that I see on the paper between those words? And it was a comb. Oh, man, that is and so I super... call that smart. So I call that process oriented design. And so that's like with my shop, it's like when I look at it, I don't see a folder. I don't, I only see fixed blades. I can honestly say I've never had that thought. Like I just, Uh, like I would design something and I'd be like, I'm going to make that. Right. Which your your way I like like better. (laughs) It's it, it lends itself to incredible efficiency. Right. It has blind spots for sure, but it does. It's if efficiency from an economic standpoint is what you want, like it really can move the needle. Like it, it seems to work. Well, and it also makes sense. I think for you and given like some of the experiences you've had early on with like small scale manufacturing, Yeah, like I didn't come into knife making and have those. So there was all of these things that like, I literally was reinventing the wheel. I wasn't looking at someone and going, Oh man, like, okay, that's working really well, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or even having the preconceived notion of like what it takes to do something, which in the early stages I think was super beneficial because I was just like too dumb to know better. Right. (laughs) Almost like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Yeah. No problem. Uh, no, I, I remember that too. No, that's a hundred percent. And, and like the, here's, here's the, if the driving factor behind process oriented design that leads to success is looking at that list and thinking, how do I make it bigger and longer? Right. And also being honest with yourself when when something's really on the list or not, because it's like, if you've, if you see a machine shop in your local area on Google and you say, okay, there's a machine shop. I could use them. Right. It's like, well, you don't really know that. You know what I mean? Like, right. You have do, no do you idea have what their true capacity, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. What are their machines? Like, are they reliable people? Right. All this goes into, if it's on the list, that means, you know, these, this person or this tool, I trust because I have evidence of that. Like I already right. know this, this is not a bottleneck. And so if you combine five elements that, you know, aren't bottlenecks, and you turn it into a product, you know the product's going to be efficient, efficient to make. Efficient to make, yeah. It's right. in, I wonder. I wonder if that is not that common of a thought process with makers, just because so many of us are like so used to just doing it ourselves. We almost right. like don't reach out to our network. Right. Um, like I've got a friend with a water jet. 
you know? And mm-hmm. I, I realized like he used to be right next. He was the landlord at my old shop. And yeah. so like, it was great. Like I would go over and have him water jet my side pops. Since I've right. moved, I haven't had them water jet anything. And it's like, it's actually a huge waste of resource. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's compiling that list is where the, is where all the work is. That's what I've learned to discover is like, once the list is there, designing from it actually feels pretty easy. It's just being honest about the list and making the list true and accurate and then meeting the right people. Right. That's what takes time. I'm going to do this as a thought exercise. I'm going to like, I'm going to try to put together a product. Like we've been talking about getting one of my fixed blades up to the point where you're doing your CAD and cam, which Mm -hmm. with like CAD and cam, I'm like caveman, right? Like I make knife parts and then I make knives. I'm not at this point able to pull anything off of my mill that I would consider like finished or close to finished. Right. So maybe that would be like, maybe that's the thought exercise is like, okay, so we take like my dad or something like that little fixed blade. And what, what processes do I have access to, to make that efficient? Well, I know I can get it water jet cut. So that's an easy one. I have like, what else? Like what else? I guess double disc grinding don't have access to that. I'd have to put that together. Yeah. And then almost everything uh, else is inside the shop. Yeah. And so see, that's where it's a weapon. And that this circles back to our earlier conversation about having those tools in your shop. Right. Is that once you know the process and own the process, even if you're not going to do it at scale, Yeah. like for example, with uh, surface grinding, like once you have the data of like, this is how thick it needs to be. Right. Um, this is how difficult this process is going to be, whatever it is. Then if you do outsource, you at least have more knowledge and information and you're not going out on a limb that you're, you're not even aware that you made a poor decision from a design standpoint. Right. If you'd never touched the material and you paid someone else to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. But that's where I'm, I'm envious of your situation with having like from a folder standpoint, you do have the assets, right? You know, you have, you have the list in front of you that, that does, it's like a constellation that forms a folding knife right. on that list. I don't have that list. And so I, I don't want to go there until I have the list first, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And like the argument can be made, like you could very easily build, you could build some folders. You right. just wouldn't be happy with the process. Right. So there's exactly. a, it's like a, it's a moot point. Like we right. could build folders, but like you would look at it and be like, I can just, you just see huge glaring holes in it. Right. Right. And I think it, it just, it doesn't like not doing that from the, from the, the outset, the process oriented design mindset. It doesn't mean you can't make it and you can't make money. It doesn't mean it's not going to work. Totally. Like it, it's just, it's just that if you start with a process oriented design, then day one, it's almost like you're on a rocket ship. Because if you only, it's like water flows and it's like through the easiest pathways in front of it. Sure. And if you only want to pick those pathways, it right. just goes fast. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, I imagine it like a Ford Motor Company. They're looking at things this way of like, if they want to bring a vehicle to market, they have to do X, Y, Z, you know? And so I think in the smaller, smaller scale one man shops, maybe there's sometimes not as much of that. Right. And not to anyone's fault. Uh, just that the mindset of efficiency actually kind of escapes a lot of mindsets when it comes to making knives. I would, I being like coming at it from more, maybe like an artistic standpoint in my head, 
And this is like, I hesitate to say that because like you actually have like a really artistic background. So it's not that you don't come at it from that way either, but I do think you have more, more oversight on your processes as opposed to like, I come at it like fairly free form a right. lot of times. I'm right. like, I'm as likely to build something completely by hand to prototype it as I am yeah. to build it on the CNC. Which is a beautiful thing. Totally. I think it, I, it bears out. Yeah. The skill set is great. And like, if you took the numbers away, like I look at it and I'm like, if someone removed the need for money from how I work, like how would I work? And a lot of times mm-hmm. I just realize like I probably just sit down and like build a knife. Yeah. Like if I want to. Well, I have, I have a, t- maybe it's a tick. Maybe it's like a weird little nervous part of my brain. But if I'm doing something and this is where I might differ from you. If I'm doing something and it doesn't feel efficient. Yeah. It's frustrating to me. Like yeah, I get that. And, and it, it's like if, if I'm halfway through it and I'm like, my brain can't not do somewhat of a time study on what I'm doing. Yeah. Like it just, I can't not do it. Like if I, when I'm going somewhere, like I'll be driving to my parents' house who live like five hours away. Obviously I've driven it a hundred times. I will navigate it because I want to know exactly how many miles and like what my time distance is. And my brain like is always doing a time study of like, this was my, like, this is how fast I made it the first hundred miles. Like this is what I normally do. And like, it's, I don't know why it's just like a spreadsheets are my favorite thing in the world. Like, just data is just something I love, which is super weird. I don't know why. It's good. But it's good I can't get love. out of it. And so that's where the efficiency, it's not that it's just like an economic thing or a totally. you know, money-making thing. It's like it actually hurts me not to be efficient. Yeah. And so it's like I try to avoid it. Money is a really easy, like, I guess, uh, gauge to use, like when you're talking right. about anything business-related. But I would guess that like nine times out of 10 with makers, money is, is, is not the primary driver of interest. Um, like I've never been money driven, like money for money's right. sake has never been my goal. Um, right. but I like competition and I like, I like succeeding. And a lot of yeah. time in business, those are related to yeah. money, you know, yeah, exactly. Here's a, here's a question for you. Like, again, being at like kind of different stages of our business, like do you, how far downstream to carry the water analogy? Like, do you look, do you think five years from now? Um, I actually think shorter term, I would say like, I want to say, I think longer term than I really do. Okay. Because if I'm honest with myself, I think I'm always, almost always thinking like within a two year window. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just being completely honest. Like I'm, I'm generally thinking 12 to 24 months out. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense to me. I'm not, I, I never know what I'm going to do in five or 10 years. Yeah. Like I've never yeah, had I can't that say like, big of a, big of yeah. a scope. Um, at this point I'm in a really odd position because there's nothing that is like, hanging out as far as like an overarching like goal or theme. And it's one of the first times in my life that I've ever experienced that. Mm -hmm. Like over the last four years, like in the, in four years or close to five years, we've had two kids. We've moved across country twice. And at this point I look at it, I'm like, well, I have two kids. I have my home. I have my shop. I don't, I don't know what the next like t- big goal is. 
I'll tell you what you need. A Corvette. Right. A set of golf clubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I really, it's, it's a really strange, it's a really strange feeling um, that I'm, I'm having to kind of like unpack as I go and it's uncomfortable. Like it's super uncomfortable. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I, I would say I've struggled with that in small, small ways for small periods of time, but I just, I, I can imagine myself being in your shoes for sure, but it's, it'd be, it's an interesting uh, thought. Give it, yeah. Just give it 10 conversation. Years. I know. 10 right? years. I mean, well, and it's like, even as a maker, like in a certain way, like, okay, I have the companies that I design for. And as a maker, that's like getting to a point where you have factory collaboration is such a bar that like, I feel like, a, like we set for ourselves. Like there's this element of like, you just, oh man, like you see that and you're like, if I can get there, mm-hmm. that it's like, I'll know I've like made it. And I look at it, I'm like, right. I've worked with Boker and CRKT for a decade, both. And I have like amazing relationships with them and I'm not looking to like add more companies. So like that drive, like there's this certain thing where I'm like, I feel like I should place it on something like a target. And I just don't mm-hmm. have the target right now. Right. Right. No, that's, that's interesting. I, the one time in my life where I think I did got to a point where I relate to that the most is like, there's those years, like I said, in between where I I hadn't been able to get a house bought. And like, because to me, the the house was in between me and getting a CNC, right? Like getting a CNC is pretty easy to do. But like, for me, getting the house was the first most important thing. And so when I didn't have the house, and it seemed like kind of out of reach, because at, in the early days, you know, I was just trying to start a business. That, like buying a house was a pretty big reach for me. And so I got in this position where I was designing for CRKT and, and companies, you know, that seemed like a an kind of a top level goal to get right. to design for these companies. And so I did, I felt my compass spinning for like three or four years where I was like, not really sure what, what am I driven towards right now? Right. You know what I mean? And I remember that feeling and it's that feeling has left me since I now have my own shop, but maybe it'll return. You know what I mean? Well, so. you're, you're fully in it. Like you have two small kids right now. Yeah. Your business is in a stage where it is, it is full growth. Right. Like you haven't, there's no, you haven't like normalized. It's all mm-hmm. new, all exciting, right. like all more potential. Mm. So yeah, it's like, I think that ties into like some of the stuff that you and I have gone over recently, which is like mental health for makers yeah, and just like these different things of like your self-worth being like very easily attached to like the products that you make and like your customer's opinions and like, you know, being able to like see past that is it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you and I both read a book recently that you recommended to me called The Great Leap. Yeah. That was, that's what yeah. it's called, right? And uh, it talks about the upper limit problem. Right. Which is kind of an interesting topic of like that we have, the, the claim is that we have this innate ability in our mind, this instinct to cap ourselves off. And not from a like success standpoint necessarily, but from like a emotional response standpoint. Right. So it's like if we're, if we're too satisfied, it's like our body wants to kick us out of that right. and turn us more into like a fight or flight. And like 
not stay satisfied or happy. And so I, I found it interesting in the book to like, do take the time to look around you and like the words that he used that, which I liked was like, allow yourself to enjoy what you have. Right. Which is a little bit different. Cause you hear people say like, be thankful, be appreciative, yeah, like, be grateful for you what know. you have. But to put the word allow into it, changed the, the framing for me to say like, allow it like you, your own mind and your own body and your being is stopping you from enjoying it. Right. So you should turn that around and allow it to happen. Yeah. The, the upper the, limit problem was like what I really related to out of that book. And like one of the things that he goes into is he used, he used like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky at one point as like an <laughs> example. So yeah. essentially saying that like Bill Clinton hit an upper limit problem. Right. And then like essentially looked for a way to like crash every success that he had built. And like, we all know people that have like done that kind of thing. Self, yeah, you self-sabotage. And like, even if you think about like high school on like talented athletes, like, you know, whatever it is, like top of the game. And then like you go and like get drunk and wreck your car or like whatever yeah. it is. Like there's this process where you hit your upper limit. And then implode. Like, implode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, the takeaway from the book that I had is uh, it almost feels to me like part of it too, is that if you get to that level where you have achieved success, it's like, if you don't find a way to enjoy it for what it is and like soak it in and not necessarily let it go to your head, but, it, but take it for what it is, which is a special experience. Right. If you don't do that, then you're, then you're, you know, like it, he described it as almost like guilt. Like there's a guilt factor of being successful yeah. that makes you feel like maybe, you know, the imposter syndrome conversation of yeah. like, you don't deserve this. Like, why, why do you have this? And yeah. then you're, it's a mechanism to force you to not enjoy it. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, move on to the next thing. It's hard, man. Yeah. Like I've realized over the last, like maybe four or five years, like, a lot of the things that drove me in my twenties, they had just changed whether I didn't have that need or that goal had changed or something. I don't know, but I realized I was, I was still working exactly like I was trying to achieve those same things. Right. And that was like a big, that was a big shift for me. And it's like an ongoing process. Um, but yeah, like sometimes just like, <laughs> like being okay with like, the way things are being present in the work that I'm doing. Um, I was, I'm right now I'm running a big batch of Cypops, a big batch of polys, um, and then a bunch of cord wrap quiken type knives. And mm -hmm. I look at it, I'm like, I could be doing those 10 years ago. Like there's a certain part of me that is, that is like, I've done that work. I'm past that work. My skill sets past that work. And so for me, like, finding value in the processes themselves is like where the value for those come. Yeah. You know, like I know no my doubt. customers are going to be stoked and like, for me, it's almost like taking a break. Like I always joke about the bandsaw being like, you know, the easiest thing just to like sit and do and yeah. it being totally satisfying. And that's like, yeah, I guess if I look at, you know, like Cypops and, and little parts at this point, it's like, that's the thing. Like you're present in the work and the work mm -hmm. is satisfying and that's enough. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah. And, and I've found that I've, now that I've read that book, it does help me. Cause like I've, I've had moments where it's like, for example, today I was stoning blades. Like, so I mill them and then I stone them and I'm sitting there stoning them. And I'm like thinking about, man, this kind of sucks or whatever, you know? And then I catch myself and at this, I'm listening to an audiobook and I think about it and I'm like, I'm listening to an audiobook, and I'm in my own shop making my own knives and selling them to customers that really appreciate them. I'm like, that's awesome. Where would you you rather be? Exactly. It's like, it doesn't suck. It doesn't suck at all. And so there's a, there's a way out of it. If you, if you catch it, you know, before you get too involved in feeling like, well, this particular job sucks, like in this moment, you know, like I'm running the table saw and I'm putting G10 through it and it's blowing dust all over me. It's like, well, think of the alternatives, you know, and think about what you have and, and allow yourself to be like, wow, running G10 through a table saw ain't half bad. You know what right. I mean? Like yeah, finding you're not that. doing it with a hacksaw. And one, you know, one thing I've found that has been an endeavor for me since a young age is like some of the biggest explosions in productivity for me, like when I was really young, like really like right out of high school, um, when I took some of the biggest leaps and felt like those were some of my most productive years. Sometimes I felt like it was driven by like frustration. I would even go as far as to say like anger sometimes. Like if I felt like I wasn't doing enough fast enough, I would get angry. And the anger actually was like a huge tool. And there was a time in some of my like early 20s where I'd be like, I'm not like, I remember catching myself finding and thinking that like when the anger went away, the productivity went down. Right. And I was like, how do I get angry again? Like, I remember thinking oh, to myself, like, for the sake of my business, how do I get more frustrated and angry at something to, to drive me forward? And so I've more recently had a revelation of like, what's the healthier mindset to have that drives a similar motivation? So like the stereotype is like, you get a bad breakup and you hit the gym, you put right. on 20 pounds of muscle. Right. It's like, you know, the anger and the frustration right. drives you to do that. It's like, how can you replicate that? without it being a negative emotion. You know what I mean? Right. I have a very similar process around stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always done like my best work or like been the most high functioning when I'm under like a significant amount of stress. Right. Um, to like kind of go off on a tangent a little bit. I think that the stress creates focus. And I think that probably over the years, that's why I've been so attracted to like leisure activities where there was some level of inherent risk and focus was not an option. It was just like Mm -hmm. you had to be in state to do the thing. So like Mm -hmm. whether that's like martial arts or motorcycles or surfing or like it's just anything that allowed me to be fully present. And stress works the same way. Um, Mm -hmm. It also creates a ton of creativity. So like Mm -hmm. when I'm getting ready for a show and I'm behind the curve, that is when I will start to have like creative, like sparks of ideas. Yeah. The, the process though, like, if you go back 10 years, like pre family, pre being married, no kids, I could allow myself that because the risk of me crashing was not, it was, it wasn't huge. Right. Mm -hmm. At this point to work in that stress state, I actually, I actually 
there's a risk there that like a curveball gets thrown my way and then everything like crumbles. So lately I've really had to like try to figure out different ways to like kind of find that like flow state. Yeah. That maybe no, there's totally. like less stake involved. Yeah, totally. Similar, but different. Yeah. Yeah. Mo- motivation is a squirrely thing. It really you know I mean? is. Like, it really, it really is a weird thing. It, it, and it's it's nailing down like the ingredients that go into it is is obviously the hardest thing. It's What's like a moving target. Yeah, it exactly. It it has to do with your age, your maturity, you know, what you're interested in at the time. It it's it's something that can escape you if you're not paying attention. You know what I mean? So Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. That's the real that's the real problem of I think everybody, but especially self employed people, you know. Yeah. And like makers too in general, because we have like different we have different inputs and like reasons for what, why we're doing what we're doing, mm. you know? Yeah. I'd be curious to see. Yeah. I think like if I had to like try to lock down like a five year plan or like even like a couple years, I would say in the next, in the next two years, I'd like to really refine my like CNC skills And I see that basically opening other doors for like creative outlet. Um, Mm. And on the flip side, I would like to, I guess I'd like to be doing more forging. And so in the back of my head, I'm like, my brain is like looking at these things like, okay, like forging is really cool because it's like this transformative process. It's, it's like a, like a, like an elastic process. Mm-hmm. And then the CNC stuff is almost like the hard science version of it. And like in my mm-hmm. head, I haven't figured out like how to integrate the two things, but I right. guess that that over the next couple of years would be like my ideal focus. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. You know? Yeah. And and you have the, a nice foundation to stand on too of, of functional knowledge too. Right. So you have the application side already prepared for you. So now it's some of the just like, the inner workings of cam and yeah, and the actual like execution of the computer side of it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I feel like I'm like 75% of the way there. Like I mm-hmm. actually understand more than I can, I can actually do at this point, which is weird because mm-hmm. it's like, if you understand it, how can you not do it? Like I understand the thought process. I just don't have like the muscle memory. Right. And here, here's another, here's another direction to go that it's something I've been grappling with a lot is like, what's your opinion on the growth of your company moving forward? Like, is it paramount to you that the company grows? Oh man, this is a really interesting one because like our business is different, right? So we have Mm -hmm. like three components of our business. So we have like Burnley knives. That's just me as a knife maker making knives. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have the production design work that I do, which is pretty substantial. Um, and that is a function primarily of Burnley knives. Mm -hmm. Then we have Burnley brand and Burnley brand is like the scalable element of the business. So Mm -hmm. if you ask me if I want to scale my business, ultimately no, but with Burnley brand, I see the ability to like scale 
laterally. In in that regard, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So like, yeah. I don't. Yeah, it's hard, man. Like, it's it splits my brain in a few different directions because like I look at it like one hand, I'm like, there's the, there's the thing that I make. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, these things that I design that come out of the things that I make. And then like Burnley brand is almost, it's like separate, but not. So it's a mm-hmm. different, it basically it's a different question than you saying right now, I want to scale my business. Yeah. Right. Right. Because to, for you yeah. to scale your business in the current version is like, scaling up your output, your, mm. your capacity, right. potentially adding an employee. Um, so yeah, I'm like focused, like I would like to increase our business, but in like, yeah, like yeah, go sideways. That's a, that's a question I've gotten twisted into pretzels on just thinking about, because I think pursuing growth indefinitely has pitfalls, has like, right. there's casualties involved. You know what I mean? To like, just purely focus on growth just permanently. Well, why? And Right. But on the other hand, like it's, it kind of goes back to the, it's like a, a sports reference. That's like you, you either get better or you get worse. You never stay the same. And so I think the mentality that like, now I'm going to coast. Sure. You may be telling yourself, I'm going to stay at this level. Right. But in letting off the gas, you're actually slowing down and declining. So it's almost like uh, it's like the only way to prevent decline is to grow. Like, and I've I've struggled with is that true a hundred percent or only partially? I would disagree with it and say maybe it's like more case by case. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, if I use myself as an example, like I am not worried about myself going backwards. Like I had a little bit of bandwidth. So what do we do? We start a podcast. Like there's Mm -hmm. never, there's never a point where I think it is actually backsliding, but there Mm -hmm. is, I do think it's, it's possible to exist in neutral. Um, I think that that, that thought process is almost like not an antiquated way of looking at work but yeah, maybe antiquated. I think there's mm-hmm. a, a time where it serves you to like, mm-hmm. look at it and go, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. But that is like a literal Ricky Bobby quote. Like if you're not yeah, could, first, you're could, last. Could, yeah. It could be a toxic thing. It if starts it like to be, yeah. And that's like where I almost lended is like, so having come out of like trades, it's like coming out of welding, like and working in welding shops, like there's a lot of those like kind of toxic work tropes that exist. Mm. And I feel like that one is kind of in there. Have you ever, mm. um, I'm trying to think of who, who it was. Um, oh man, who is the, he's a, na- he's like a national living treasure knife maker. Um, he's a bladesmith. I feel ridiculous for bringing it up now. Cause I'm not going to be able to think of his name. You're talking about like a forge guy? Oh, Jerry okay. Fisk. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, so yeah. Jerry Fisk, mm-hmm. he wrote a he wrote a knife making book that's like this little pamphlet. Um, and I ordered one and it's awesome. Like it's all of the ba- it's like kind of the basic building blocks of like 
how to run a business as a maker in a really simple mm-hmm. and easy way to understand. And oh, I I'd think have to look at that. Yeah. It's, I don't even know if it's in print or anything, but it, next time you're at the shop, we can check it out. But I think he may have actually even said that, like, if you're not moving forwards, you're moving backwards. Right. And I think I really believed that for a long time. And at this point, like, I don't feel like it serves a purpose in my right. thought process. Well, and I think also, I think also you have to look at it in the, in the lens of like, if you can, if you call yourself from a productivity standpoint an innovator, because right. there's productivity, that's like physically how many knives are you making or how right. much money are you making? And then there's productivity of like contributions from a design, like intellectual property standpoint, sure. like invention, creativity, expanding right. the horizon of what a knife is. That I think it a hundred percent applies to, because if you're not creatively expanding what you're doing sure. from a intellectual property standpoint, you're going backwards. Okay. Absolutely. You if know. that's the, you know, what's funny is maybe that opens up a topic for a future episode, which is like how we landed on the name of edge and flow. Oh yeah. For the podcast. Uh-huh. Because yeah. both, both are elements that I think are super integral to like our being as makers and like a lot of our methodology mm-hmm. and they're very different. Yeah. Yeah. Our, yeah. The edge and flow <laughs> name I love, and it probably bounces off some people's ears is kind of like random and obscure. Right. Well, it's but like easy to tie that into knives. It's, it's got poetry in it though. It's got, it's got a deep kind of thread to it yeah. that we, you, I agree. We did just like cross into that territory. So yeah. that is a podcast right there. In okay. And of itself. We'll do that one soon. Yeah. I like it, man. Um, what else? Like what else is going on? We're getting ready to go to blade blade show. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when this will get posted. We haven't decided yet, but it's blades. What through two weeks away, two weeks away. Should we make a goal to post this before blade so that I can say we're going to blade. Let's do it. And if, if you're listening and it came out after blade show, uh, I guess we're liars, but we're going to do it before blade (laughs) before blade. Okay. Uh, anything you're super excited about at blade? Like this is the first time either one of us have been to blade in a few years. Yeah. So it kind of like a weird domino effect happened that really made me unhappy. So like I was, I was going to all the, the blade shows and every shot show that I, from the very first minutes that I decided I was. And when we say blade show, you mean blade show in Atlanta. And yeah, so as well we, as yeah, when West. we say Blade Show, we mean like the big show. It's the, Blade, the Blade show, show Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I'd been to those, I don't know what it was, six or seven in a row or something like that. And I was like, I'm never going to miss one of these things. Like it was how I built my career right. was Blade Show and Shot Show. And it, I like had a love for them. And, uh, and then I got married one year. This was 2019 and made the decision not to go to Blade Show that year because our wedding was basically like uh, probably 10 days after what blade show was that year. And I was like, you know what? I can, I can, I can take this year off. It makes sense. I was like, I'll miss a year and it's totally fine. I was happy with that. And then 2020 and we all know what happened. And so the next year, and then I had a, I had two kids since then as well. And so it just like turned into this giant cycle of like, I miss show after show after yeah. show. Cause like my kids were due plus or minus like two weeks from shot show, both of them. And then blade show got canceled. And then just things like it just turned into this like cycle of like totally falling out of 
this show schedule that I was on. So going back this year is like, it feels to me like a return to glory. Like, it's like going finally, back to summer camp. Finally. Yeah. And so it, I'm friends. excited. Yeah. To see, you, see people here, here. So here, this is something that I'm very curious about. You've gone to shows, but you've always gone as a designer, right? So it's an mm-hmm. industry show mm-hmm. for you. You now have product. Mm-hmm. Is there a knife show in your future? So I, I was so close to, to getting a table at this blade show. And what occurred to me not very long ago is that my demand right now is kind of hammering me and I'm trying to get my productivity up to meet demand. And it just felt like it was too soon because I was going to have to let down some of my existing customers right. by like putting show pieces in front of customer orders. And I was like, I don't want to do that right now. Eventually I'll make that decision to do that. But I think so in, uh, Salt Lake is the is the Blade Show West yeah. now. They moved it to Utah. Super excited about that. I think it's a really good I, fit. It might be the show yeah. where I where I roll out like an actual table. Right. Uh, yeah, you can coming. drive, like show up with yeah. product. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or like USN. And how about you? You aren't having a booth or table at this show, right? It's the Blade show super Atlanta. surreal feeling like my muscle memory is kicking in constantly and I'm getting like stressed out because I'm like, well, it shows three weeks away. And then I'm like, yeah, but literally all I have to do is get on a plane. But it's, I mean, I've got 16 years of blade show prep. Um, so yeah, this year, um, no table. I'm just going to be walking around. I'm teaching a blade Mm -hmm. grinding class with Tom Crine, which I'm super excited about. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm excited just to go and be able to spend time, um, with like collectors and other makers and just kind mm-hmm. of like reconnect, um, yeah. to the industry. I made a, I made like a conscious decision to reduce the number of shows that I was doing, um, mm-hmm. for the time being, just because again, like little kids, my yeah. wife and I work together. Like, it's just, it's one of those added stressors where like at this point I would like to kind of rotate through some different shows just for the enjoyment of going. So like this year I'm doing, um, Billy Cho and Nick Rolf's show, um, up in Portland in July. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And that's like, same thing. It's four hours, you know, like just it, for me, it's like, that's the right amount of time to go to a show and, and get to hang out. Yeah, no, totally. And, and for me, it really comes down to the people. When people ask me, I think I might've mentioned this before, but if people ask me like, how do I get started in the industry? How do I get a foothold traction? I'm like, well, it's all about the people. I mean, that's the, that's the case. Networking is the case with all business. I mean, that's like the age old kind of cliche adage is like networking, but it's like the friendships at the foundation of that, you know? And like, you just can't replicate that on like Instagram or a forum. It's just not going to happen. Harder. Yeah. Harder on Instagram, like easier on a forum, easier right. on Facebook in, in some of the groups and stuff. It's a good starting point. It mm-hmm. gives you a reason to go to a place and meet up with people. Right. Um, I also think it's important, like for like when you think about networking, like I remember giving collectors advice, like early on, like if you're a new collector, going and trying to score a piece from like the most in demand maker is going to make a show frustrating. Like go for it, do the thing, go do the lotteries, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But 
I think it's really fun to, to network at like at your level. If you're a new collector Mm -hmm. and you can get in with a newer maker, you can grow with that maker. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. The same is true for makers, like Mm -hmm. going to a show and trying to connect with like, I don't know, someone who's already like busy and like is over leveraged as opposed to just Mm -hmm. like going and meeting makers that are making like, like the type of product at the skill level that you're at, you guys Mm -hmm. grow together. And that's like, yeah, that's super cool. And you get these like cells of generations of knife makers. I've noticed, you know what I mean? You get like the, not generations by age, but generations by like where they at, where are they at in the industry? Like how long ago they start? Are they full timers? Right. Like the guys that are, that are side hustling, like they kind of seem to form groups. Right. Guys, you know, and I'm not saying it's clicky. I'm not saying it's toxic in that way. I'm just saying like people that relate to each other seem to find each other. And yeah. I think it's a healthy thing. I do too. Um, and I think it's good to like push outside of that a little bit too. But yeah. but that's that's human nature, right? Like when I think about my mm-hmm. contemporaries, I'm like, yeah, like a lot of us came into the industry around the same time. Mm-hmm. We're not all the same age, but we're like, you know, knife making is interesting because the the range, the range is definitely like upper limit of ages versus lower. Like the number of very young makers is disproportionately smaller than the number of very old makers. Yeah. Right. Well, a lot of, a lot of people are retired from something else and became full-time knife makers as a result of retirement. I've noticed like from like maybe they're ex military or something, you know what what I mean? Do you get a job when I retire? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. The other way. Yeah, we're lifers, man. We got a, we got a life sentence, I think. I, At least I do. I don't know what I would do other than this. Same. It shifted like the my interaction with the industry and like the way that I look at it or the way that I work in it has changed. Like that's that's the nature, but I mean, I'm 20 years in. Like I'll say stuff and Maddie will call me out and be like, "You sound like you're 60." And I'm like, "I mean, it's just time." Like you're mm-hmm. 20 years in an industry. That's just time. You know, that's right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I hope I got a lot of more years. Oh yeah. You do. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got a long run ahead of us. I look oh, forward so to it. I can't crossed. wait. Can't wait for, uh, for like a small nuclear reactor flying drone knives, you know, in 40 years, man, it's so crazy. <laughs> like if we just look at, like we, we were talking about, um, like some of the equipment costs and stuff dropping and like barrier to entry. So the style is, was intriguing enough for you to actually order one. I mean, mm-hmm. that value of machine, like a couple of years ago, I feel like would have easily been over a hundred thousand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's like small format fiber laser cutters that'll cut up to like a quarter of an inch of material. And they're running it like 50 grand. That machine mm-hmm. five years ago was 150,000. Like, mm-hmm we have access to like desktop water jets. Like, yeah, they're not like crazy productive, but the fact that I could literally just throw a water jet in, you know, a three by three space in my shop is mind blowing. It is. It's unbelievable. I I love it, man. I do too. The industry is taking shape in a way that is so fascinating to me. Like it's, it's like addicting to just think about like the new opportunities from a technology standpoint. 
And uh, do we do that fun. as a show? Is that a fun one? Like, do you like technology a, and like, knives? Like technology and futurism in knives. Like, where do we? Where do you see the industry going? Because that that's the thing. Right now, like, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but I do have some thoughts on like where the industry, yeah, maybe in five yeah. years. Yeah, we'll make some uh, prophetic statements and we'll check them back in ten <laughs> and years. People can call bullshit on us when we're yeah, wrong. right. <laughs> All right. It means you have to listen to us for five years, so get ready. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you guys you guys can uh, take notes on that <laughs> podcast and uh, make sure you get them out of a time capsule and hold us to it. I like it, man. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Anything else we should go over or should we just like wrap it up? Yeah, I think that's it, man. I think uh, it really, we went in a few different tangents, I think in a good way. And we just, uh, I, I was excited to hear about where your mind was because really that's what it comes down to when it's a one-man shop is true where the shop's going is where your mind is pointed. So your shop are are more interesting because you're actually like doing quite a bit of work right now. Oh, I don't don't know about that. (laughs) Well, you're at the, you're at a position where it becomes more philosophical in a lot of ways, which fascinates me. It's weird. Yeah. Like my, my like win of the week was I sourced some new uh, fiber optic ray skin and mm. I basically like built a run of knives around them because I wanted to try That's it. Awesome. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. Different. Man. I dig it. <laughs> I saw those. Those are those are cool. Pretty cool. I'll show. Yeah, I'll, I'll get some up close photos for you. Had almost like an well. oil slick kind of look to it. Yeah. Yeah. Very chatoyant. Cool. Yeah. I like that. It's good. It's a good one. Hey. All right, man. Um, so that was fun. Look forward to the yeah. next one. Peace out, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Take it easy, guys.